Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and you're in for a treat today if you're a fan of the filmmaker Michael Mann, who made such classics as Heat, Last of the Mohicans, The Insider, Miami Vice, which is one of my favorites. Anyway, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, and today I'm talking with Blake Howard of One Heat Minute fame. Blake created a fantastic podcast called One Heat Minute, and he has a Patreon page that I can't recommend highly enough called patreon.com one heat minute and he has his one heat minute website so please check all of that out and this conversation is about all things michael mann so if you're a michael mann fan get ready to nerd out and do a deep dive enjoy blake thanks for coming on we were just chatting off air about miami vice and you made the the deep insight about the key moment i think in that film is when one of the key moments is when sonny's in the penthouse there interrogating um their their connection and he looks out over the ocean and you can tell that something's happening and there's a similar scene that man references in collateral with vincent with tom cruise's character in the back of the taxi and i think man calls it the tectonic plates in vincent's mind are shifting do you see a connection between sort of those two scenes there oh absolutely i think that um the insider is more most broadly uh, a stylistic shift movie for man. And a lot of people like credit that movie with, you know, like especially there's that wonderful scene with Russell Crowe's Jeffrey Wigand in the hotel room. And then like, it's like, like a dream, the, the, the mural on the wall comes to life and just the different ways that that movie is shot. But heat has it too. There's like weird things that happen in heat, you know, um, Neil McCauley, like the famous Alex Colville, man staring out into the ocean yearning you know thing is there like it's there and i think that it just when it comes to miami vice and then comes to collateral i think that man's sort of philosophical uh prescription to the idea of the sublime this thing that's so beautiful it will destroy you but you can't you can't stare away from it. You can't help the impulse to run towards it, like that moth to a flame impulse. I think he is just, that is so cauterized in his filmmaking by the time he's doing Miami Vice and Collateral. It's just, it's there. And what's so fun about Collateral as just an idea is it's like, it's a great script. It's a super fun idea, no matter who would have made the movie, but that's where you really see Michael Mann's style come to life. Cause it's like all that other stuff, the philosophical stuff, the, you know, we got to adapt E Ching, you know, all of the Michael, you know, in the nicest possible way, all that Michael Mann shit that people like me and yourself really get into, it is so present that he brought it to the text. Like it's got this great scaffolding of this really dynamic idea great just you know visual literacy thing like a cab driver great numeric thing that people can do in their head i've got five stops to make tonight that like just all these things that tick all the boxes and and of a genre convention but the overlay of that stuff is really powerful for me and i and uh, you know as a passive viewer of movies when you're sort of not a, an insane person like me or, or like yourself you get to sense that when you're watching a movie, there's sometimes there's these little asides that totally you miss on the first or second viewing even. And I feel like I was really lucky with Miami Vice because I'd kind of learned how to watch Michael Mann as a big fan by then. So when it came out, all I was looking for were those asides. All I was looking for were those little windows into who these people were because it was so fast paced and so dynamic and you dropped in in media res straight away that like that sunny moment for me was like a lightning strike. And the whole movie is this series of, um, you know, my, my great co-host Katie Walsh on Miami nice calls them plastic moments where you can like feel the energy. The energy is manifesting in a physical something between the people and the screen. And in that moment, it's just like, it's, he's, he's got an aura Colin Farrell, sunny. And it's a really special thing. And, and I think that those, you know, that's where Michael Mann, he he just gets how to synthesize these moments with and i think some people i think some people are really impatient for that sort of stuff like get on with it and i find myself increasingly being like i'm all about that like i i actually want i want those digressions that show me some personality and some difference and maybe some tonal 
you know, something tonally different or, or something that's so tonally on point, but just expressed in a different way. Um, but yeah, I, I, and, and I hate when people have to explain how they feel. And I think Michael Mann is great at, at conveying the inner workings of a character, both psychologically and emotionally without saying words or just giving them the freedom to be in a moment and him probably rigorously making them perform that moment over and again until he feels like they, he can see the, the, the wheels turning. But yeah, I just, that, that moment is sublime to me about sublime things. See now just with that answer right there, first question, your answer, I now have 19 different directions <laughs> <laughs> to, to take this conversation. Um, let's, let's zoom out for a second. So agree hundred percent with everything you just said. And man, of course, is known as this incredible technician, just knows every aspect of filmmaking. Um, Jack Nicholson once said about Kubrick, you know, he knows lenses. He knows the guy who made the lenses. He knows the guy's a dentist. He knows whether that guy's a good dentist or not. Man's the same way, right? Um, and yet, in, in every man film, I think, what he's attempting to do is create an environment for the viewer where you're no longer just enjoying the movie, following the plot, you know, collaterals that, that the plot is on rails as you kind of referenced, but to move out of that and into an almost experiential state where the performance, the sound design, the music, the images, the editing, everything is just transporting you sort of in the moment into that. So in collateral, I think of the scene in the taxi with Jada Smith in the beginning where the music's oh. playing, right? And you just, uh, or the Cuba interlude in, um, in Miami Vice, which, you know, for the casual fan, it's like, oh, I wish they'd cut that out. But for the real fans, it's like, oh, that's so good. It's, it's like, this is the only character that gets backstory. It's yeah. like, this is the only character in the whole thing that gets backstory. Is it? Yeah, it's thrilling. I love that Jada Pinkett Smith scene. Oh my God. I've been playing that, that the group Armada. Group Armada. So yeah, good. I've, I've been playing it in the car. I'm like, this makes my car ride feel so awesome. Especially at night. If you're driving at night, it's just the best. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. So we talked teaching off air. I was a high school English teacher for, uh, I can't even remember now. Um, five, seven, nine years. And I used to play, so I used to have like my sort of chill mix that I would play while the kids are working. And that was one of them. Oh, that's uh, a great, that's a great shout. I, yeah. I was thinking about that. See, I got to ask you this, more of this stuff off air. Um, but yeah, look, he's, he's a filmmaker who gets, um, he's a filmmaker who gets the experience. I think Miami Vice theatrical cut is like the perfect example of like getting the experience being like dropped. Like it's the most outlandish you know, thing to think of, like just being dropped in the middle of a nightclub. I don't know anyone, the wall of music, it's really dynamic visuals. There's people wearing like reflective clothing. So I don't even know where I am. Is this the future? Is it the part? Like, what is it? It's a take, it's, it's a disorientating moment. And the whole, it's a whole series of disorientating moments because you're kind of like, you're not only in, you're not only like three quarters way through a case, you're also then brought back to a case that was completed from like two years ago with Alonzo, um, John Hawks's character that comes into the movie. So yeah, I, I just find that Michael Mann has just got such a great sense of, um, and you know, we talk about it in the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans as well, one of my other podcasts, but like that final thing, that final stretch of Mohicans is so, is so people have called it like a film clip because it is, it's, I think that, that some people use that as a derision, but I, I think of it as the deepest compliment is because a film clip in its powerful potent little concentrated dose is meant to just give you like a complete sensory overload visceral experience of like um images that either complement or crash against the the sound that you're hearing and and i think that like michael man just gets some of that stuff he just gets it on a level that that is really great that even in movies that I mean, people keep arguing with me to tell me that Black Hat's a good movie, Ben, I just won't accept it. I'm just like, it's not. But why people do that is because in really powerful and potent scenes in even a movie that is not good, like Black Hat, um, he gets the visceral qualities of a scene. Like the sound design is insane. Um, you know, bullets, bullets are just like 
they're a shout in this in the soundscape. They're not like this little pew pew pew. Like it's a shout. They're a bang, and they bang in concrete caverns that like shake through the speakers, and you feel it in your seats. And um, you know the, the visuals and the and the and the score, and then the the proximity of the camera. Like he loves to rush in. There's some wonderful shots in Ali of you know these little handheld. Uh, sort of GoPro-ish cameras, Michael Mann himself holding it, like trying to weave a jab with a camera into, so you know, some melee. And yeah, I, I I feel like it's it's a whole mix of those different things. He kind of gets that virtual proximity of cinema, um, and and then the soundscape, the the sound bed, literally that is the the sort of the blanket that's sort of keeping you in. And I I, lo- I can't I can't tell you how much I love an immersive experience like that and, and yeah he just got he's just got good taste he just knows um, he knows and when it comes off to perfection when every sound choice is perfect and every one of those immersive moments is perfect it's it's very special it's like um, you know that I, I would just say to most people like the entire airport runway sequence of heat like in a theater on thirty five mil um, there's nothing more special to me in the world. I saw it opening weekend uh, when I was a university student. It was amazing. My, so my favorite film of man's is Mohicans and kind of referencing, and, and you have a podcast or, or a section of your podcast that's dedicated to that. Yeah. Um, and what I love about it is sort of that, and man is sometimes called this a fugue state, creating this fugue state for the, for the viewer, uh, the participant, is that that's the man film that for me, culminates with that moment and yes. i think you know i'm just thinking off the top of my head i think it's also the um only man film that sort of has the um best or, or, or the culminating action sequence is also perfect at the, end. at the end right whereas a lot of times it's at the midpoint or towards the end but not the actual end sequence uh, and, and you talked about this on your podcast um, the generosity of man, the generosity of um, Daniel Day-Lewis to give that moment, not to Hawkeye, but to, Ch- to Chingachuk. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's, it's, you surrender your movie to the side character for the crescendo. It's, um, it's insane. Yeah, no, look, the, the Fugue State, we, we were talking in preparation for our chat about, you asked, you sort of had a two-pronged question. One is like, man's fugue state this idea of like this immersion and then you had a secondary question which was why does he rate avatar so highly um and i think that that's exactly it like michael mann talks about like forgetting about avatar for a second and and just coming back to fugue state one of michael mann's favorite films is the passion of joan of arc um and it's a movie that could not be more different from something like last of the mohicans but it's a movie that's told in expressions and thoughts and feelings being conveyed through like eyes. And it's so in your face. Like if you ever had a chance to see this thing on a big screen, I'm lucky enough that I have seen it. It's so the rawness of the emotion as well as the, it's like, it's obviously extremely heightened because it's gigantic faces and music and all those things that cinema is. But I think that, that film, almost more than any film, I see in his movies as his reaching for and aspiration to that fugue state because it's like there, that is such a stripped back moment or such a stripped back sequence of moments in that movie where it's just a person emoting on screen and you're watching them and you're just sort of, you're being asked for to just accept this tidal wave of their emotions. And and so when I see that, I go, this is a filmmaker who that's his greatest aspiration. It's like in the, in that great end of sequence, it's like Alice gets to have that moment. Like she gets to, she gets to pour her emotions through when she's deciding, do I take my own life here or do I go off with a man who's holding out his hand to me in a gesture of good faith with the blood of the person I love dripping from his hand. And so I feel like it's all of that. It's, it's him knowing where the emotional barometer is, or even like probably like the, whatever that earthquake measuring is, you know, like the, 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 the Richter scale. Yeah. Like whatever that Geiger counter, the Geiger counter, that's what it is. That Geiger counter of where the, where the emotion is going to be the best is exactly why he makes that choice because it is, it is 
it's not with Cora and Hawkeye in that moment. They still have the the luxury of sharing each other. It's Chingachgook. And that that way that he does that. And so then to tag it onto Avatar, because he, he rates it in his top 11 films. Um, it's a pretty banger of a list. I've, I've got it here somewhere. Um, but it's... I think Avatar, at its very best for mass audiences, did that. Because... I don't know if people remember, like people remember back, it feels like a million years ago now, but it's like you walk in, walked into the theater with Avatar, you're going into a 3D film. The last time you wore 3D glasses, they were, one was red tint and one was blue tint. And you now you've got these like sort of fancy looking sunglasses. They're a bit strange. All the theaters had been tuned up to use this. Some of them had been custom fit. Some of them had been refurbed. I went to a refurbished brand new cinema that had full capability for 3D on opening day. And you sit down and for whatever problems you have about this fantasy, which ultimately the biggest problems with some of the plotting is that it's obvious. But I think that that's, that's a really, I sometimes use a phrase, Ben, and you know this from following us on Patreon. Sometimes use a phrase called hack shit. I'm like, that is such a hack shit bad faith film take to be like, Oh, I don't like James Cameron's avatar because it's like obvious and archetypal. The intent of the story is to be obvious and archetypal so that people can relate to it. It would be like saying that, oh, I don't like Star Wars because it's like the hero's journey. It's like, that's exactly what George Lucas was doing. So I think for me, what man loves in that is just the, the canvas of the expression. And so much of Avatar is like very, it's trying to be very simple, but not simple in a derisive way, but simple as in you can process this and I'm just going to turn up the emotion and the rawness of the emotion and keep it simple and keep it raw whilst you build an incredible, vivid, fascinating, stimulating world around very simple emotions. And I think that some people can't wrap their head around why you'd want to do that. And I'm just like, that's the most obvious thing in the world. You've got this huge canvas, very complex. You want to make the characters very processable and very relatable and very into and and so while I wouldn't put Avatar in my top 10, um, I can totally get why people would put it in their top 10, especially as an immersive sweeping experience because it's so immersive and so incredible. And even like, you know, we talked about the Terminator poster that's on my wall here. Um, but like Terminator 2 is so brilliant. I think one of the best sequels ever. And at its core, like you've got this really complex story around multiple future artificial intelligence and military outfits that are trying to send back operatives to kill or save past people who are going to have influences in the future. It's very convoluted, but at the end of it, what it's about is about parenthood and it's about growing up. It's about growing up and it's about, and it's about uh, being forged in the fires of sometimes you know, your parents having those bad experiences or your parents having challenges and learning to overcome them and learning to take what you can that's great from them and learn from them, but ultimately becoming your own person and 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 becoming an adult. And that's why Eddie Furlong's so great in that movie. And so I would argue like at the center of all really great high concept movies are really true, simple emotions. And so I feel like man, man is a romantic, big romantic filmmaker. And so at the center of his stories are pretty ultimately simple things um, when you really break them down. Um, but it's about how he makes them really rich and really informed. And, and then sometimes you can kind of like the, the simplicity and the poetry of the way that he delivers it will just bowl you over. And in the case of Mohicans, it's just like, Oh, of course a love a father's love for a son <laughs> magnified and, and, and amplified by the fact that, they're the last two of a, of a race of people. Um, there couldn't be anything more powerful than that. So that then he's the hero of the story. Oh, I agree 100% with, with everything. <laughs> and I'm a huge Cameron fan as well. And I, and I think your insights into why man appreciates Avatar are spot on. So at the end, you were talking about simple emotion. You know, great films or good films are often tied to a simple emotion. Terminator 2 is about parenthood. You know, surrogate father, real mother, Terminator 1, love story. Um, and you said man's a romantic, which I, I agree with. I think a lot of casual fans um, don't see that. Um, 
So I think one of the major themes uh, of man's work is the idea of risk versus reward. Mm. And we have professionals on either side of the law or in any type of profession who are incredibly proficient at their job, incredibly proficient at assessing risk and, Mm. and not doing things to up that risk side of the ratio. And then there's an inflection point, usually involving a woman where that risk reward ratio or that, that understanding of risk is okay. It's out the window and I'm going to do everything I can for this other person or for some event bigger than me. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think, I think a lot of people do something and I, I know that you're not like this, but just for example, it's a lot of people like, yeah, man likes guys who are good at their jobs and they, they are. Um, but but, think, but but that's uh, just the first step. It's much just, more than that. It's so much more than that. I think the next bit of it is, it's not that they're good at what they do. It's that they are what they do. And the challenge is when you are what you do, there there is, um, there's a self-definition that you, you are this thing. Uh, and it's, it's some, some people are like staunch with their beliefs. You know, we call them, um, fundamentalist. And I would say that Michael Mann professionals are fundamentalist professionals. They are, they are, they, they are an extremity. And I think that, you know, in, in some of his other films, in his earlier films, the extremity is less, um, less apparent, save for probably Manhunter. But like that extremity is the key to him understanding like how they get good. They get into this flow. They get, you know, we talked about fugue states, but like they get into their flow state. They get into their optimal being when they start to sacrifice what life is to do that. And I think that that's a constant dialogue in man's work, probably because it's a constant dialogue in himself, because this is a guy who reputationally is completely obsessed, a real ball buster, in some respects, but demanding the, the level of demand that he has, especially on each project and depending on sort of the plays you have in projects, some projects work really cohesively when you're a demanding person because you have the right crew around you and you have the right material and it just works and you have the right actors who are there to be a part of it. You know, I think one of the greatest man collaborators is Tom Cruise because I just don't know of another actor in the world who puts himself under as much pressure as Tom Cruise does to deliver for a movie. Um, and, and so I think that like those people like your day Lewis's and your Tom Cruise's and Will Smith with 11 months of training, you know, there's those sorts of things. So I, I think that is, that is man's, a man's man. It's like, it's, it's, it's who they are and they're fundamentalist about it. And then they have to negotiate living in this world because you can't be on all the time. And when you are on all the time, there is always going to be a gap. There's always going to be a question. And there's always going to be something that you covet that is outside of what is in your experience. Because, you know, the great coveting scene is Neil Macaulay, which is Robert De Niro's character in Heat, sitting at a dinner table with his crew, looking around the table, seeing... Michael Chiritos, Tom, you know, uh, Tom Sizemore, Michael Chirito and his family and Elaine, his wife, they're with the girls, they're talking. You've got Treo um, and, and Anna there on one side of the table. You've got Chris and Charlene Chihilis. He's, he's looking around the table at all this love and affection and this, and the, these guys get these islands, these places that they can escape this sort of fundamentalist life. And Neil has to live at every minute of every day to that level of extremity. And so people are like, oh, he broke his own rule. Is it any wonder? You know, it's, it's, he's putting himself at breaking point every single minute of every single day. And so the, the thing that I love about, yeah, the thing that I, um, that I really love about this film, uh, this filmmaker and these films is that he essays that fundamentalist relationship and expresses it through like just basic desires. Sometimes it might be like, actually, no, I do want to have a family. Like in Thief, that amazing car ride conversation between James Kahn and Tuesday World. He's like, I, you know, I drive this car. I got this $10,000 suit. Like it's just like the greatest ever like lines, you know, just 
bang, bang, bang. So good. Winston's big and, romance. Uh, we're just big <laughs> romance. Like, get out of the way. Like, yeah, like, I've got no time for this shit, right? This ephemera, I have no time. And so that that thing, um, that whole time is luck ethos and everything is tied into that fundamentalist ap- approach to your to, to expressing your life through the job that you do because it is about then when you realize, and this is the thing, it's like a ticking time bomb. When you realize that you are living at that, because people don't realize they're at that fundamentalist level or that designation until they're, they've been living in it for a decade, everything becomes extremely urgent. Everything after that. And so that is what I love about his films is because people are like, oh, you know, the relationships and this and that. It's like, no, the urgency. If you if you prescribe to what the film is going for, he's so urgently trying to capture that. I just want it. I want it now and I don't want any of the fluff because normal people who aren't like me have time for the fluff. And, you know, it's a, it's, um, I think people who maybe love Michael Mann like me and like Michael Mann movies, you know, sometimes we're, I'm just, you just, I think people can appreciate that. Even if you're not fundamentalist about things, it's like, if you tell, you know, sometimes it's like with a job or with a, you know, people have it with an assignment. You know, we've talked about academia. It's like, if you tell me what you want, I will give it to you. You know, if you tell me what you want, I will give it to you exactly as you ask for. And I think that people sometimes like that. There's, and, and, and I, and I think that it's funny when it's prescribed to something that's such a gray area, like relationships and love and desire and family and what a life means in a collage. Like I want the collage. Like that's what's so beautiful and sort of, you know, fatalistic about, you know, James Khan's whole approach in Thief is like, this is a guy who's like, he's got the collage. This is the roadmap. This is the schematic. Just like I have a schematic to open a safe. I have a schematic for what my life will be. It just doesn't work like that. And so um, that's what I really like about, that uh, that entire topic because he doesn't I don't think there's an easy answer like anyone who's creative and obsessive or just obsessive about their job or they take great pride in who they are or really self-defined about what job it is I don't care if you're a carpenter you're a plumber you're a builder you're a chef people have these things where sometimes the obsession road like this obsession toward a level of perfection or a goal you're 10 years down the road before you realize that you haven't gone, you haven't spent time with friends. You haven't called that person. You should have called back. You haven't taken care of your health. You haven't done this and that. And, you know, I think it is a consistent wrestle for a lot of us out there who, who have that is like, that's why you relate to these movies on such a deep level. Like you're not robbing places, hopefully. And if you are good luck to you, learn all the lessons that Neil McCauley taught you and don't get caught. But, but I think for most of us, it's such a deeply relatable thing about like just, getting too caught up, getting too caught up. And, and that's the, that's the negative side of like being passionate about what you do. A lot of people are like be passionate about what you do. You never work a day in your life. Cool. Then you work all the time. It's like, it's the same in, in COVID. It's like, oh, isn't it great? You now get to work from home. No, I live at work. Do you know that? Exactly. Like, it's not that it's, exactly. that's, that's where Michael Mann lives. He lives in that. It's like, oh, isn't it great to be passionate about what you do? Isn't it great to be enslaved by what you love? Right, right. And kind of going along with that, um, I think a lot of characters, almost every character in man's films are imprisoned, either actually yes. in prison or had been in, in actual prison, but are imprisoned in society. Yes. And they're, they're doing something they're good at, but it's their job. And, you know, maybe this is the, the Marxist in me. But I see a critique there of of capitalism and that a lot of characters are trying to escape. Neil wants to escape this life. Sonny, I'll be in this world a few, a little longer and then I'll find you. At the end, Isabella does escape. Now, she, it wasn't necessarily her choice, but she escapes. And Sonny, of course, and, in and that we, beautiful feel, final shot, walks back into society. We feel like she's going to be fine. A hundred percent. She's going to a good thing for her. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and so it's this idea of, um, you know, we I, I messaged you all fair about this man's background university, and he's talked about this, 
know, he was at the University of Wisconsin in the 60s, radically progressive institution. Mm. And I, I, I suspect that man is a radical progressive. And you see it, you see these critiques of capitalism peeking out here and there. Um, and so just everything you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm nodding my head. And, you know, when we talk about sort of the, the simple idea of man's films are about guys who are good at their jobs, and you said they are what they do, exactly, they, they are what they do, and they're imprisoned by it. And so when Sonny's looking out over the water, he's looking yeah. through the bars at freedom. Yes, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, that's, that's what makes him a very interesting and fascinating author and kind of an alternate, an, an alternate new Hollywood voice to people like Scorsese and Coppola and Lucas and De Palma who came up around those different times. He's like on the fringes with the people like Terrence Malick, you know, so they've, they've kind of got these, you know, these guys are progressives and things like that, but man, I think very particularly, and this is why he's got, had an affinity with criminals is because, you know, I think if you, if you prescribed a, like a very radical view of capitalism, it's like, is there, what's worse working for a bank or robbing it? Um, because one may argue that one may argue that the robbery is a nobler pursuit in that you are disrupting a, uh, I don't know, a kind of like fascistic, uh, right. you know, this, this is the bank's money, not your money. This is the bank's money, not your money sort of organization. And so, yeah, it's, I, I think that that's, what's really great. Um, a, a great chunk of Michael Mann's, uh, philosophy in it. And I look, I think I, he has a very, I wouldn't say there are some radicals who go to the point that they, they go past the tipping point. I think to say that the world's sort of, the world's going to end, everything's screwed up and there is no, there's nowhere to go. And I think what is, what man, where man has come down philosophically, especially with these relationships and things like that, he's like, at the end of the day, the systems that are around us, the society or societal conventions that we have to adhere to connections are the thing like connect connections and, and and sometimes you know he will just be fine with like the connection of your work and the connection of the people around you the connection of your crew will give you an anchor that you can sort of live in this world um um whatever world that is and 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 i i think it's really interesting but i definitely agree he is he's firmly in the camp that um, there, capitalism is something to be critiqued. Um, and he also uh, went to school in England uh, for a little while, went to film school in England. And so he went to school at England at a time where there's that great um, sort of blended period where you had this radically progressive hippie movement that came out in the 60s. And then you started to watch the conservative clampdown through anti-drug culture come up and then the rise of conservatism that sort of swallowed Britain with um, Margaret Thatcher. And that was all happening at the same time, but it was, it was sort of, it was blending through a lot of the activism that was happening, anti-Vietnam war activism that was happening in the UK. So I think that it's, it's not only coming from a hyper progressive landscape and also having that lens of, you know, it's the Vietnam War time. I could potentially get, you know, taken off to a war that I don't want to fight. You know, it not even be a conscientious objector, just be drafted to go to the war. And then going to England and seeing the international perspective uh, and having a, a little bit of distance from it, but also just seeing that those controlling elements from both sides of society. One is more of a, one's an old colonial. So it's a po now a post-colonial world, but it's like, America at that time is like a neo-colonial because we're still in the steeped in the cold war. So it's this, I, I think it's those fusion of things. Like he's an individual that lived in those times and he's going to have those opinions and they don't necessarily have to come out and be completely obvious. But I, I think Ben, like in a lot of his work, he's, you know, he's, he's quite ambivalent about it. He's like, yeah, this is the bank's money, not your money. Like I, I, right. he doesn't care about the bank and the villains, the villains of the insider, which I think, is, that's my second favorite Michael Mann film. Mm. And for many years, I would say it was running equal favorite to Heat. Mm. I love Heat on a deeper, more profound level, but like the insider as a piece of art is like, it's just. The opening shot for a major Hollywood yeah. awards season film. The opening shot is, is for the point of view of somebody blindfolded. For, and not for two seconds, for like 10 seconds. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's through, through the mesh of a blindfold, right? And, and amazing. The the it. the stones on it, right? To do it, just as just as a piece of craft is yes. incredible. But that whole film is as cynical about corporate culture as Network was. Now Network has a literal conversation with a devil played by Ned Beatty, essentially as the head of this amorphous corporate thing, but man makes all those people real and gives them all real names and shows you how, you know, um, he's, he's very clear to show you the, the way that corporate culture is kind of amoral. It's just like, it only has one language and that's money. And if we're not making money or you jeopardize the money, like the risk versus reward for the corporates, it's like, you're not talking about risk versus reward. Like you guys won't stop making money. You'll, you'll, you won't make a hundred million. You might make 90. And so he's very pragmatic about that. And I love that about the insider because it is just, and you know, at Pacino's Lowell Bergman, I think it's one of his greatest performances. And yeah, I just, you know, I think I use greatest too many times, but I, I genuinely believe it, but it's, 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 he's, he's just so wonderful as Lowell and, and Lowell is a real guy and, and still a friend and, Lol Bergman was a Marcuse, like at UC Berkeley, was a Marcuse understudy. Um, so he came out of a similar radical, radical sensibility. Right. So Ramparts watching the fusion, Ramparts, yeah, the collision of those two guys coming together as well, I think is is something really important. And and yeah, they were that because the idea is once you get a little bit older, you get less radical. Um, but I think it's about navigability. Like, can you navigate your way in the world and lol was for a long time and then realizing this is at what cost is me, me being able to navigate my way through the world like at what cost right. to my soul is this and so right. that's why lol's a great character too because and, and, and both both lol and weigand again are are imprisoned and i think the the one-two punch of insider and ali is is the clear the purest example of man's um political sensibilities and critiques i mean he's he hasn't touched a minute of insider but he's he's constantly um fooling around tinkered. with yeah tinkered with ali but it, he always i think it's telling he always leaves in the u.s government cia component so i mean <laughs> yeah. that's that's just a clear critique of how how we've meddled um in homegrown uh movements for freedom and movements for freedom overseas yeah the um, it's a great one-two punch of Bruce McGill work because, um, <laughs> yes, you know the insiders like the why that smile of your face, Bruce McGill, and then like the the Bruce McGill like speaking French um, with with you know uh, Idi Amin in, in just you know just hanging out with a bunch of African dictators is um is also a pretty special Bruce McGill. Yeah, look, um, he's he's clear like uh, every version of Ali has only expanded upon. Yes. The, the meddling. The political like critique. It, yeah. the, the political critique. And a lot, like it just get, gets bigger. It becomes, and, and I think a lot of people, um, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I, I just want the boxing stuff. Like, can't we just have the boxing stuff? And I think, I think people have matured. People want the real, the real life version of Rocky is what they came to, to. And that's, that's why I think it wasn't financially successful. Yeah. I, I, but I would argue that that's a film that just continues to grow. And I, this is what's unfathomable to me. It's like Will Smith, it is his best performance by so many leaps and bounds that that I just can't even fathom it. And also Jada Pinkett Smith, for a person who doesn't get nearly the plaudits that she gets, she's wonderful in collateral. Oh my and, God. And, and the music in the in the love scene in Ali, yeah. it's just special. I'm, and I, so yeah, yeah, Will Smith. Will Smith is so special, and that movie is so special. But I mean, everything about it. There's a there's a great track. Um, I've kind of gotten myself obsessed to listening to it um, mm. on the on the Ali soundtrack, and if you, oh, I love that you, soundtrack. I, I'm not, whatever song you you are going to name, I love <laughs> it. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna just bring it up because I want to I want to make sure that I'm right with it. Um, there's a song called "Ceremony" by Tom Vedvik and Martin Tillman um, mm. on the Ali soundtrack. You can just find the playlist on Spotify if you want to check it out. Um, but this song "Ceremony" is the song that plays over the death of Malcolm X in that movie, and I just. Mm. It is one of the most heartbreaking, poetic, beautiful, like lyrical uses of uh, of a piece of of a piece of strings. Um, uh, it's yeah, it's a, it's a movie that is filled with like these unfathomable highs and these huge lows, and it's just yeah, it's a great story of what America is like, and um, it's so cool because Michael Mann was obviously a huge fan of Ali, but I I I 
I just love, I love, love, love that he got a chance to tell that story and tell it on a huge canvas. And even though it wasn't hugely successful, it was, it's only grown in like everything. Oh, it's only grown in people's conception since. And, and you talked about the opening of the theatrical cut of Vice the, in media res, which I, I can't remember if it was you or Katie who said on one of your episodes that, uh, and, and I think this is how most Miami Vice fans feel. We want, we want the in media res, but then we want that diner scene with, um, with Tubbs and, um, yes. and Trudy, because oh, that's, that, that scene just adds more emotional weight to the, the events that come later. And, and speaking of, you know, the last 12 minutes uh, of Mohicans, or I just, I think the last 40, I think everything <laughs> from the ambush as they're leaving the fort to the end, but also the first 10 minutes of Ali. I mean, talk about fugue state, right? I mean, you just right away, you're, you're just nothing. in it. There's nothing better than that opening of Ali. That's a, it's, oh, a, so it's, a, it's, it's so, it's so special. It shows you the time. Um, cause ultimately Ali's, Ali's a bit of a funny film in the biographical genre convention stakes, because it does one, it does two things. It does, it, it wants to bring you to the moment where he acquires the title. So that's one very specific moment in time to the point where he refuses to be a part of the Vietnam war. And then it, it does have to have like this weird connective tissue time between where you just see that he's like, like just languishing in existence because he's being held back at every single turn. And then there's the breakthrough moment, which then leads to his opportunity for redemption um, in the rumble in the jungle. And so it, it kind of accepts that it's really telling a story of two times. And in some of those other store, like some of the other expansions to it, it, it does build more of the connective tissue and the tissue is less about Ali. It's more about the conditions of the world. And so, but yeah, like I, to 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 get from a singular point and then go like to tell so much information and have so much like you know Sam Cook as like Ali's guy and you know that that whole use the the choice of the song the use the capturing the culture capturing his dissatisfaction with where his life had been up to that point like all of that it's just really special like and, and I it's a it's a it's really amazing. hard it's a really hard movie for me to not cry about to be brutally honest like wow. i've watched that i've watched that movie now and i am just i'm a mess like one of my other favorite i mean genuinely best sporting documentary ever i'm sorry the last dance um is when we were kings like that is yes 100 one of my favorite things that has ever existed um in any form of pop culture um I've, boxing is super close to my heart and uh i just genuinely am consistently blown out of my socks when I watch Ali um, for every facet that's, of that's, it. That's, that's a great man phrase too. Blown out of my socks. Blown out of my Love socks. Love it. Um, you mentioned earlier about when we are talking about people feeling imprisoned in, in society and that, you know, Neil is anchored by his crew and then he realizes what he's missing is love. And again, through man's films, it's love that's going to save you. It's love that's going to free you from your societal imprisonment. And so the duality of Chris and Neil in heat where Chris ultimately rejects, you know, have nothing in your life you can walk out of and, and Neil adheres to the code. Neil is murdered. Neil died, not murdered. Neil dies, is killed. And Chris lives and presumably maybe in the future, you know, waiting on this book to, to see what happens reunites with uh charlene at some point in the future yeah it's um the way i've always viewed it is chris refuses to prescribe to neil's walk away until he has to until he realizes that love is walking away and i think that that's where neil is different there's a great triumvirate dialogue that's happening there between neil and Vincent and Chris is because Vincent does the same thing. There's a moment with Justine. She's like, could we make this work? Like she sees him doing his job and saving Aaron and like, uh, saving Lauren rather. And he's like, look, we could, but you're right. Like all I am is what I'm going after. And he has to say that to do it. And when he gets that pager call, 
he skips gleefully out of a breakup. Like he's out. I love that. I love that. It's, that shot. it's, it's, it's like, he's it's like, school's like the bell is school. wrong. It's Friday <laughs> and he's just running. He's he, to he, his job. He he's for better or worse. He's, he is the most who he is, not the best, the most who he is when he's doing his job. And I think that that's what Chris, Chris and Neil have that moment where he's like, the sun rises and sets with it. And it's true. He is risking it all being there. And the worst traffic stop cop ever just completely misses that he is the guy. But, but we, again, we're, we're happy to, we're, uh, for all the movie's authenticity, we're happy to let that one go through. In Australia, we'd say, let it go through to the keepers. Like that's a cricket it's, phrase. It's like, it's like, it's like just... that, that, that traffic stop and whoever <laughs> did the, the code, the, the building code, of the mansion where you just walk out the door and you're on, you're on the roof. Yeah. Just, <laughs> but yeah, whatever, sorry, I, I interrupted you on, um, what, what, on Chris what and Vincent. Whatever that is, right? Whatever the building code is. But that moment, um, that, that sequence of events and then Charlene giving him the, the beautiful, I'll stay, literally I'll stay. In cards, I, I, the the someone picked that up for me after the series, and I have to say it like I'll stay because he's a gambler, and of course he knows what that means. Like I'm staying, that means you've got to go. Her giving him that signal is he knows that that's actually what's best, and that's what's going to kill him. So in all of the times that we're running away, we've got Neil running away to save his life, and he knows he's breaking Edie's heart, and we've got Vincent running away. He actually knows it's better but it also has that air of self-serving. Like it, it may not actually be better for a short time because Lauren is clearly struggling. And so is Justine. Like we've seen her basically smoke weed and do Xanax for the entire film. And she's not in the best place psychologically. And she's got her daughter has attempted suicide. So it's going to be tough. Uh, and Charlene is the most agency and awareness and street savviness of all. Mm -hmm. And she knows if I say that I'm going to cooperate, but I find a way to get out of this moment with you, then I've cooperated. Like, right. I've, I've, yeah. I've done, I've done everything I could do. I'm sorry. He didn't turn up. I was really and I on get him. to go. We get to go. And so she gets to walk away and, and there's that moment where he actually drives away post traffic stop. Right. And if you talk about fugue states, that's the fugue state mm. where you see inside and you're in the fish tank of that car mm -hmm. and the music swells and it is just, it is just conveying the, the most profound heartbreak of all. Um, and, and that's Chris having to drive away from Charlene and Dominic and living. Um, but, but him not wanting it to go that way. And, yeah, it's it's a really you know that's see, see I I read that scene a little bit differently, but but actually while you were talking, I just had a thought that I, I haven't. It's a half form thought that I haven't had before. In that there's a connection I think between Charlene and Isabella, um, and then mm -hmm. I wonder if um, if Vincent, you know, is Vincent is is Vincent what Sonny is going to be. 15 or 20 years down the line just you know it's his job he's so good at it and you know isabella's off in cuba somewhere and he never followed up on that um i don't know i'm just i would i, I would i would like to think mm. i don't know like to use to use another michael mann's fan cinema language chris nolan like at the end of the dark knight rises there's that wonderful scene where alfred's mm. spoilers mm -hmm. sitting in a cafe he looks over and he sees someone who may or may not be bruce wayne hanging out <laughs> with selena kyle it is right. Bruce Wayne. It's, right. That's what it is. He got out. Um, I like Vincent to think, and Isabella having mojitos. I just like to think it's not a, even about the having mojitos, but it's just like in a world where uh, there could ever be a sequel, and I 100% will say to you, Ben, and whoever is listening, there will never be a sequel to Miami Vice, this movie, with the same people. Yeah. But I would like to think that like – in the middle of like a big hellish sort of drug bust something, she's also around and, you know, Sonny just makes a different choice the next time. He just walks away. And Rico kind of gives him the endorsement to walk away. Like, mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Uh, and, and I, you know, that would be a fun, that's a, that's a fun hypothetical to think about. 
But yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I think that's the great wrestle with all these different characters. And the mo- one of the most extreme ones, and I know, I know they had a bit of a complex relationship and I know that he's not a fun person to watch these days, but like Johnny Depp in public enemies is a great one because it, he is, he is not only, he is not only, uh, caught in a situation where he has to leave the person that he loves for the right reasons. He is actively self-destructive and it's a whole other lens on like, it's not about accidentally. It's about intentional. Like I'm going to intentionally sabotage and the impulse for self-sabotage. And some characters do have that impulse for self-sabotage in other films and they're essayed upon a little bit, but his deliberate self-sabotage is something that's really unique to this whole, the jobs are who we are and they own us mythos. Cause he's like, there is no doubt. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going to die. Right. The best case scenario is that they'll make a great movie. Like he's literally like, right. that's all he wants. Live fast, die young. Live fast, die young. That's it. <clears throat> like the movie tells you from minute one that he will not compromise. He, there's not going to be a negotiation. There's not going to be the sun rises and sets with her. And obviously there's a beautiful coder at the end of that movie that has something implicit about it to, to, to say about it. But, you know, in his, in his last gasps of life, um, because Michael Mann is a romantic, um, yes, but, exactly. but, but, but it's that thing of like, this guy is intent on his own destruction and that's what it is. So that last question, then I'll get you out of here. You've been very generous with, with your time. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate it. So I just want to circle back to, to my thought about Chris, my feeling about Chris. So I read that scene with Charlene. It's not, Hey, you got to go. And that's it. We're never going to see each other. I see it as, you know, he left, um, he, he didn't catch the plane uh, and he's going to find his, the, the woman who his life rises and sets with. And because he did that, he's saved. Meaning yeah. that, that he leaves. And then I think somewhere down the line, once the heat is off, they'll find each other again. Right. And then when, and, and the similar decision moment for Vincent is in the tunnel when he's made it, he's with the woman who's going to save him. And then he, he decides to go back into the, into the heat and his fate is sealed. I I, I think that's a, I think it's a fair reading. I've just always read it as she was at the end of the rope with him. Mm, Yeah. And and he's self-destructive. I mean, he's very similar to to John Depp's character. Very self-destructive. Yeah. Not enough stakes in the freezer. Mm -hmm. And she loves him. But the fact that, so like the risk versus reward for Charlene is less about the danger of the heist. It is now that I have to be used as a weapon right. to get you here. Right. And I've always thought in those moments when she's crying that I'll stay is we can never be together. It's again. done. It is done. Mm. It is. This is, we are finished. And, and I guess and, man's shot of, of um, Chris driving away indicates that's, that. that's what, that's what I've always accepted is that like, it could be Chris mm. just like, I'm, I, I've got to get out of here. I can't have her. And I've, I, maybe it's just me being a little bit more, uh, maybe it's me being a little, <laughs> a little bit more of like a, ma- a man romantic, like, Oh, he'll never see her again. God damn. <laughs> and, you know, really buying into the emotion of the moment in a really heightened way. But uh, yeah, I, I just genuinely am. When I look at that, when I see that moment, and I see it, I go, that's, that's everything like that. Yeah. That that's the, that's everything for me is, is, is her saying I'll stay and him, the gambler he's made, the, he is a gambler. Right. He's made, he's made, that's a good point. He's made the biggest gamble to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he shuffles away and, and that, that moment in the car and that sort of, uh, it's almost like a screech. Mm-hmm. That sort of screech is just like. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, that, that changes, um, that changes the pressure of the cinema. It's a really special moment. And he just, I mean, Kilmer, poor guys, you know, with his current, um, throat cancer issues that have really mm-hmm. sort of, um, impeded the latter half of his life and career, but man, when he was at his best. Oh, and his best was heat. I, I his think. best is heat. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, this is the thing, you know, 
being a boxing fan and obviously like Ali, I always measure great actors when they're working with other great actors. Mm. And I think Michael Mann, Michael Mann is, uh, ha- makes a habit of putting really great actors alongside great actors. Mm-hmm. And so when you see like Wes Studi basically make Daniel Day-Lewis look like the co-lead of his own movie, you're like, yes. Wes Studi's really great. Okay, guys, we can just say Wes Studi's great. And when like, when you are standing with De Niro and giving on the same frequency and De Niro is just like full intensity and you're just cool with it, that's a really special actor. And so, you mm-hmm. know, that's why I always, I think that Kilmer in this is, is really, really deeply special um, because he's just so doing good. something, he's just doing something different. He's so good. Uh, you know, it's funny. You, you've talked about on, on the podcast, West Studi's hand acting. I mean, that just that, Oh, perfect um, gesture. Enough. And and now you just mentioned Charlene and her gesture. I just realized man is really great at hand acting, at, at, at getting actors to do just perfect, subtle movements. Um, no, subtle is not the right word, but just great gestures. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know where it actually came from, but like, say, don't convey. Like, I'm sorry, convey, don't say. Convey, mm. don't say. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, um, and the biggest lessons are, you know, in a positive sense for Martin Sheen, but a negative sense for say Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel is a beautiful gestural actor. He's like Willem Dafoe. They've both got these incredibly expressive faces that do so well to contort and show emotion. And like you can see in the nicest possible way why he was replaced for something like Apocalypse Now because Martin Sheen has one of the most deeply empathetic and sometimes blank... Yes canvas expression faces that you just pour yourself into. And so I'm such a fan of the choices of doing less of taking some heat off of a performance to, to allow the audience to project on that character. And so, yeah, I just, man makes choices because he obviously hires great people and they obviously are good, but like in that moment, you've got to take it to the most limited way. And you see on Kilmer's face, he smiles and then, the immediate realization gesture. It's just like, you don't heartbreak. It does not need, there does not need to be a line of dialogue in that scene. You're hearing all this background noise and bouncing basketballs and a tiny little lyrical, like do, 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 like weird little couple of notes that are happening in the score, but it is a silent movie scene. Um, Mm. And that's what, when cinema can be really powerful is like, you don't, it doesn't always have to be jibber jabber and dialogue. Um, uh, that, you know, that's, that, that's where that kind of, um, you know, a, a place in the sun, Montgomery Clift, and then sort of, uh, 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 like on the waterfront, Marlon Brando, they kind of brought that, like, people can just have a conversation like normal human beings and cinema will pick it up. Whereas in plays, you can't do that. Um, and, uh, and so that's what I love about this scene and about this movie and about the, just about Michael Mann's style is like, he just loves, sometimes it's about a guy as innocuously as scrolling through channels on a flat screen TV, like Justin Theroux in Miami Vice, or it can right. be something like, like a tiny gesture um, or someone feeling standing awkwardly because they, they're OCD and they don't like how someone's apartment is, you know, like just little, like things. Which character is yeah. that? Oh, it's it, um, Dominic Lombardozzi's Herc. He's like, don't you have a clean up in here? Like oh, his right, hands right. are on his hips. Like he just doesn't, <laughs> he looks awkward in the scene the whole time. And part of the performance is not the line. It's actually like right, feeling awkward. I mean, I don't That's know so about funny. you. Like my, my, when my brother was younger, he, he roomed with a couple of guys and their house was disgusting. Ben. Mm-hmm. It was disgusting. And as young men, with no women in the house, who cares? Like it was a party house, but like sometimes you could sit down or like put your hand on the kitchen bench and go, Oh, like it's sticky. And you don't know why <laughs> it could be food. It could be anything, but like, that's but, awful. So, so I know that feeling of like, you go into someone's house and you just put your hands on your hips awkwardly. Like I'm not touching anything. Cause right. I don't know what's clean. And so, right. yeah, it's just one of those things that he just gets it. He, you know, he's a, he's a really incredible filmmaker. He's, he's, um, you know, there's been some challenging films and, you know, hopefully his style and the kind of films and, and TV projects that he, he gets into now can really harness that style and he has the right crew around him and they can still be safe and courteous and, and, and sort of, you know, not, not all have this sort of turbulence, but in my mind, turbulence or not, 
what comes out at the end is usually very interesting and, 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 and inspiring and worthwhile. Yes. I, I think that is the perfect place to end. Blake, this has just been a, a real treat, uh, a true pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for thank taking you. the time. So Blake Howard's claim to fame so far, <laughs> One Heat Minute, an absolutely incredible podcast that I can't recommend strongly enough. And, you know, from, from your home or home office in, in Australia, um, starting this podcast, One Heat Minute with... Wasn't in North- a home office to start with. It was in a... It was in a spare room. Now, now, it's, now, now it grew into a home office. And, and ended with an interview with Michael Mann. I mean, it's, you know, that's a Hollywood story um, to some extent. Yeah, it's a bit of a Cinderella thing. Um, that's why I'm such a man romantic. Because, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, because, you know, sometimes dreams come true. It was pretty, it was a bit of a dream come true story. Exactly. Lots of uh, lots of other cool stuff coming to One Heat Minute, uh, .com and One Heat Minute Productions podcast and uh Ben, I'm, it's a it's a treat talking to you. Thank you so much. It's actually really fun uh, getting a chance to be a guest on mm, a podcast, mm, just having a chinwag mm-hmm. with you. It's really nice. So thank you. Definitely. Uh, and and let me also just mention your Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash one heat minute. And you can get great content there. I myself am a patron, I believe at the Chris Shaherlis tier. Uh, <laughs> there, so... are three, there are three heat related tiers. <laughs> Uh, so me and Chris are, are, are looking for for a place to buy milk. What does he What does he ask the basketball players? He's like, "We're gonna get some." I forget what he what he's like some weird thing. Yeah, he a place. I, I can't even. Remember yeah, I think right it's now. like milk or bread. He's looking for. <laughs> um, yeah, that's me and Chris. Uh, all right, sir. Have yourself a great day, and thank Thanks, you ben. so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Cheers. This is Ben Guest, and you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.